0: This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm M.L. Clark. In a classic episode of The Simpsons, the city of Springfield happens upon a sudden windfall of cash. And just like that, they find themselves gifted with the presence of a man who knows just how they should spend it. Monorail. The stranger hypes up this notion of an exciting new future for the city around the system of transport, even though it's a completely irrelevant addition to the infrastructure as it currently stands. The monorail just feels new and futuristic, so of course everyone in Springfield is all aboard. Take my penknife, my good man! I swear it's Springfield's only choice! Throw up your hands and raise your voice! Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. What's it called? the 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 episode not only reminds us that a fool and his money are soon parted, it also illustrates a fairly consistent human proclivity to be dazzled by the idea and the promise of new technologies, even if they're only ever replicating old systems. And unfortunately, the idea of the monorail isn't very far from reality at all. In recent years, we've had billionaire Elon Musk try to reinvent the bus in a series of underground tubes that don't at all mitigate our real-world traffic problems and also present very real fire-related death traps thanks to the construction not only of those tunnels but also the vehicles being ported through them. In the world of global finance as well, we often see attempts to reinvent the wheel, to create products that feel new and improved, to generate market hype, and hopefully boost consumer participation. In the last episode, we talked about one such recent venture, in the form of cryptocurrencies and related digital assets, that have attempted to replace fiat currencies, yet which still need the support of fiat currencies to protect against financial disaster. But in other episodes, we also talked about the way that new private third party services were popping up to replicate the work of traditional banks simply because those traditional banks had very little interest in serving certain key demographics, in part due to the extreme risk they might be taking on to develop the necessary market relationships. It's not surprising then that so many of our hopes are sometimes pinned upon the hope of invention solving everything. In the world of economics, financial technologies or fintechs are routinely raised as the solution to build a better global financial market. But how exactly? And are there other older systems that might be built upon instead? To answer those questions, let's distill some of the bigger issues we explored throughout this series. Financial experts, when writing or talking about the global markets ahead, are never lacking for possible pressure points. There's concern about cross-border capital flow, meaning how to reliably build transactions between different countries and different systems of financial checks and balances. There's concern, too, about the difficulty of regulating all the recent pop-up third-party apps and actors trying to address customer bases overlooked by major banks. And then there's the broader mess of a bloated financial sector, a huge uptick in self-supporting administrative systems and elaborate networks of new financial products that do not at all reduce consumer risk, but definitely reduce transparency shrouding many facets of global finance in mysteries, even to other professional financial actors, right until it all comes falling down. Organizations like the IMF and World Bank prioritize the development of thriving, integrated national economies within this messy world order, and in the process, make huge demands on national policy in exchange for development or emergency funding. This creates significant pushback on the local level too, especially because many of the austerity measures they put in place seem to decouple national growth from improved life outcomes for the hardest hit citizens. In other words, we have ourselves quite a mess to detangle in the financial world ahead. And yes, to some extent, fintechs do offer a solution. One interpretation of our current model is that we're just in the awkward teenage years of these new technologies, that for now, we're stuck with a massive, redundant labyrinth of financial services and products, but that very soon, with the help of more new technologies, we'll actually have all the data we need to provide clarity for consumers and clear up quite a bit of mystery surrounding new market products. In the best case scenario, greater precision and transparency for our existing financial bloat will reduce the threat of more bank and exchange crashes due to everyday consumers not having enough information about a product to make more responsible investment decisions. If everyone, debtors and creditors alike, can see their exposure or vulnerability whenever they decide to make a deal, the logic goes that maybe they'll make better choices. In theory, at least. Even in this situation though, there's a risk of what's called herding behavior, in which the fickle panic of we wonderful human beings will drive us to or away from certain deals simply because it's what everyone else is doing. So surely there must be extra information, more insider knowledge, driving the crowd this way or that, right? In other words, no matter how much information you provide a system set up ultimately for gambling, you're still dealing with a system of gamblers, behavioral problems and all. And that's not even taking into account the complexity of countries choosing not to act on blatant data sets, precisely because the politics of financial policy has to take more than raw numbers into consideration. So how do you genuinely mitigate the addiction to risk? That's where two other solutions come into play, but they're not as shiny and new as this one. Yes, FinTech absolutely stands to improve data precision and transparency, but it needs the complementary presence of at least two existing methodologies, long-term thinking and the logic of arbitration if we're to stand any chance at all of building a better financial system for the world. And it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Chop Talk, and for six episodes, we're calculating what humans are worth to one another through a deep dive into global financing, the messy investment structures that simultaneously promise to improve human agency, and routinely repeat the same colonial problems from past eras in the process. Long-term thinking in finance is a pretty obvious fix for many of the problems we currently endure, but it's not easy to enact. So long as some people want to make a quick buck, there will always be new financial products showing up, even with huge volatility attached, to answer the call. Nevertheless, some markets, like in Chile, have developed penalty models to restrict, if not heavily disincentivize, short-term inflows of cash. And plenty of countries have recently started imposing bans on lending their domestic currencies to foreigners who are engaged in the practice of short-selling. This is all to encourage a different kind of relationship with the international market, one of deeper and more long-standing investment in regional growth. In return, emerging economies have also been trying to push for long-term investment through growing bond markets, which lock foreign investment into domestic currency, and even on occasion longer-term foreign exchange hedges. This hasn't been easy because foreign investors often have very good reason to be worried about locking their money into a national currency that hasn't had a great historical track record. To set investors' minds at ease, many countries are also trying to stabilize their internal holdings through increased local reserves in foreign currencies and increased monitoring of their possible liabilities in foreign funds. Now, I don't want to dive too deeply into the intricacies of this system for average listeners, though I've included a few fuller explanations in the show notes for those who'd like a deeper dive. But the main point here is mutualism. If I have a local economy in which all transactions are made in a common currency that is only supported by more of the same in a giant bank vault set inside the country itself, I'm extremely vulnerable to losing value for those transactions, especially when my citizens are also trying to exchange their money for foreign goods and services. But if transactions made in a local currency are supported by a diverse enough vault of foreign currencies and equivalent assets that are consistently highly valued, then suddenly the value of all those currencies, all those assets, is a bit more closely tied together. We're all in this together. And that's because, as we've explored before, trust lies at the heart of all finance. Trust that when I transfer funds from one bank to another, the second bank will honor the exchange. Trust, too, that when I send my money across a border, the receiving bank will give me an honest exchange rate and also do due diligence not to let criminals make similar exchanges, too. Something that could easily jeopardize my wealth if international regulators are forced to crack down. And that's where the other half of the equation comes in if we actually want to build an international system that can better sustain a more even playing field for all global participants. The future of oversight. Here, when diving into the world of modern finance, analysts talking on podcasts, publishing articles, and advancing whole research directions through full-length treatises on international banking, I've been struck by all the elaborate plans currently being hashed out and promoted to create better international standards. On the surface, one might think that improving capital standards is a no-brainer, but there are always going to be financial actors who prefer a Wild West scenario, especially when the alternative is allowing certain countries to become more involved in setting any standards for the rest of the world. One example of thriving international standards lies in the operating principles behind SWIFT, the cross-border financial exchange, which holds its members to a bar that all its member countries have in turn considered worthwhile to uphold. Another is the codes of liberalization put out by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, and related free trade agreements. All of these rely on what's called soft law. A series of accords that have no force in international courts. They rely on the trust and the shared principles of all participants therein. But they also aren't lacking in precedent, and that leads to the fascinating case of arbitration. Another legal realm that is both extrajudiciary, meaning outside normal national courts but also increasingly important to solving global disputes. I actually don't think most folks realize just how much is determined these days not by formal courts but by arbitration processes that various parties have agreed to enter into as part of the initial contracts they set with each other. These arbitration proceedings can happen between two or more companies, companies and state governments, or even two or more state actors and the force behind their rulings is simply an international standard, an international promise to abide by the verdicts reached in any contract dispute that reaches this point. What makes arbitration such a useful comparison for the work needed in the world of global finance is just how it goes about setting its procedures. Two parties, when they realize that their contract dispute can no longer be managed by simple mediation, engage arbitrators, And then decide on which seat they want to use as the standard for their arbitration process. These seats are different countries' established standards for how an arbitration will take place, and with what level of enforcement in the end. A common favourite on the world stage, for instance, is Paris, which doesn't mean that all the parties need to zip over to France to haggle over contract law together. Although, I mean, why give up the excuse, am I right? What makes Paris an excellent seat is that its body of arbitral standards is much more open-ended than many others, abiding by international minimums, but with a significant amount of wiggle room for both parties to personalize proceedings. Other seats in other countries might prove to be more fastidious, and that might be something that both parties want, so they're free to choose those too. More public education around arbitration is called for because this massive network of arbitrators is not just growing, but also growing increasingly detached from what most folks recognize as traditional judicial exercise within formal democratic practice. Rather, these are all essentially private, backroom corporate disputes, carried out with the support of local governments, whose authority rests ultimately in gentlemen's agreements to abide by whatever decisions are reached therein. And they shape so many of the corporate and state contract outcomes in our world today. But I raise them here as well in this conversation about global finance because the way arbitration handles the question of procedural authority offers a useful model for dealing with the biggest problem in setting international standards for capital flow between countries, Namely, the question of who gets to decide what those standards should be. Some standards have obviously been set by the IMF and other major organizations with the weight of large memberships behind their decisions. But there are also a significant number of more select groups proposing structures to regulate emerging economies, and also proposing competing orders for the implementation of those standards since not every country can be expected to have all the resources they need right away to answer every international recommendation for their financial systems. Are they just supposed to sit out on international markets entirely until every single item on the checklist has been completed? Not feasible. Not happening. But if we draw from the world of arbitration, maybe we don't need international standards to be universal as contradictory as that sounds, just to get the job done. Maybe all that's required in order to incentivize more actors to be willing to do business in good faith and to encourage state actors in particular to better regulate internal practice is to create a playing field with more agency to choose specific standards-based relationships with other countries from a range of internationally approved options. In this speculative financial world, we'd therefore be tying together some of the best facets of fintech, or at least future fintech, the kind that would actually allow us to track critical financial data with greater transparency and precision, with a system that both rewards long-term investment in economies that are deepening and stabilizing their foreign holdings to improve mutual trust, and also allows every financial player more agency to decide what international capital standards agreements they want to be assessed by when seeking to enter into new relationships with others on the board. In theory, this would allow for more third-party services to continue to reach population gaps in the existing banking model too. Although the initial increase in data transparency would also probably knock out quite a few of the most volatile ventures before they could do further damage to people trusting them with their savings and remittances. Those that pass the transparency threshold though would be just as welcome to choose which international minimum standards they wish to abide by and to operate under the shelter of those standards and attendant relationships, irrespective of whether or not local systems are set up effectively for enforcement. This is all conjecture, of course, however much I might be drawing on the work and dreaming of active financial analysts in the field today. And I still wonder, at the end of these six episodes, if even this much innovation and adaptation from other thriving methodologies can actually fix the core problem of global finance. Maybe it can, I'd certainly like to be proven wrong on this accord. But at the end of the day, as much as I'd love for these systems to work better for every human being on the planet, the question remains, do major actors even want global finance to work better for everyone? Or to some extent, is the current brokenness of international finance by design? If so, then all technological and procedural fixes in the world won't be enough a much deeper rethink of human value and how much we're willing to do to defend it on a planetary scale will be necessary instead. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with ML Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo And all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better World's Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind and seek justice where you can.